to a very familiar passage, very well-known passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 2, and I think we'll read just verses 1 through 10, or what, yeah, 1 through 10. We, we read verses 11 through uh, 22, so Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to continue my theme from this morning, though it was this morning about God, God exalting truths, I now want to consider with you man humbling truths. So on the one hand, we exalt God, and on the other hand, we ourselves are reduced by the truth, humbled by the truth about what the Bible says about us, what God says about us. So, Ephesians 2, beginning verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God who is, or being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of us, I think, are familiar with this passage, and particularly with the humbling truths about which it reveals ourselves and shows ourselves, shows us. What we're like shows us what we once were like. And so it's a a very relevant and a very pertinent passage, very powerful passage, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 2, these man-humbling truths. Now, you know, today is Reformation Day, so we've tried to remind ourselves of, of the great truths of the Reformation. And again, here in Ephesians chapter 2, the great truths of the Reformation are found here particularly as we might sometimes refer to them as the five points of Calvinism. Uh, Certainly those five points are designed to exalt God and to show us what God has done for us, to show us particularly what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And I'm always interested to know from God's Word, what is it that Christ has done for me? Because that's what I want to know, that's what I want to live according to. Uh, I want to be a thankful, praising kind of person, uh, so I need to know what God has done for me. And Ephesians chapter 2 is, is very revealing in that respect. Uh, tonight there are, I suppose, thousands across the country. Uh, because it's Halloween, all Hallow's Eve who are uh, out there celebrating what the world has to offer. And when I think about uh, Halloween, uh, what does it really offer? It offers you candy, Right? And it offers you darkness. That's what it offers. And when you put them together, you have candy that covers over the reality of what lies behind the candy. Uh, It's not so sweet after all, but it is dark. And, uh, you know, little children don't really understand these things. They enjoy the, the, the season, the day, I suppose, but... There must come a time when, when as we grow up, we begin to be aware of some of the dark truths of our own life, and we live in the light of that, and now we discover as Christians that I did walk once like a child of disobedience, like uh, a son of disobedience in darkness, in death, and uh, why celebrate those kinds of things when we can celebrate victory in Christ? and the exalting of God as we look at His Word. So a Christian then we can say, I think, first of all, is without exception and without question, man, woman, boy, girl, a Christian man, a Christian woman, Christian boy, a Christian girl, is someone 
who has been humbled by God. It's the first thing we could say that God does. He humbles us. What do I mean by that? He does not leave us uh, in that condition of brokenness, but God, it's quite clear in the passage, has recovered what we could not recover for ourselves. In fact, so clearly is that, that the Apostle Paul writes in terms of death and made alive. We died on the one hand, we were dead, in fact, he says, in our trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive. What a change, what a transformation that is. And so this, the Christian is someone then, as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, who, who see, has come to see themselves, has come to know themselves, exactly as the Apostle Paul has described them here. So in a particular way, we can see what God says about ourselves. So to be a Christian then, precisely, is to see yourself the way God sees you. The way God knows you. That's what it means, I think, ultimately, to regard ourselves as a Christian. How does God view me and see me? So Ephesians chapter 2 introduces us to these very humbling truths about ourselves. And the point, I think, of all of the humbling truths is to be reminded that God saves us. God saves sinners. Because there's no question that, that here he describes the fact that we once were sinners like, like the rest of mankind. And we were sinful by practice and so on. And so this chapter reveals to us that God does something about that. God intervenes on behalf of, of people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. We know from our Bibles that Jesus did not come to save the righteous, those who think they're righteous. What good thing must I do, good teacher, to inherit eternal life? Jesus just went to the heart of the problem of that rich young ruler, didn't he? You must sell everything you have, because that's what you hold on to. That's your life. You must give up that. You must sell it off, and then you must give the proceeds to the poor. And then when you've done all that, then you come, follow me. Then you have eternal life. Which is simply pointing us and reminding us that there is a price to discipleship. There is a cost to being a Christian. We recognize that and we all know that and Jesus reminds us of that. Now I want to draw your attention. The first truth that we could say or gather from Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul presses upon us is our condition. Our condition. The condition of man is not a flattering picture. It doesn't matter what century you examine. It doesn't matter what decade you examine. It doesn't matter what home you were to enter. Wherever you go, the picture of man, the condition of man, is not a flattering, exalted position. In fact, if you look at verse 1, the Apostle Paul just says you were dead in trespasses and in sins. And what he means by that is that our nature in the spiritual sense of the word, this uh, is, is something that he describes as dead. Now, I think we all know what dead means. Dead means no life. Dead means no possibility of life. Dead means no recovery, like if you go to hospital and uh, there's no pulse or there's no heartbeat and they zap you and you come back. Uh, that's not what dead means. Dead means there's no coming back. There is no life in dead. And so by dead, the apostle means here not spiritually dead because he's talking about these Ephesians who are alive but who once lived uh, according to the course of this world, following the prince of this world, whom he says you once were dead, dead spiritually then. And you will notice that the nature of man is revealed quite clearly here, here, here because he says we have trespasses and we have sins. Now, what is a trespass? Trespass is a deliberate deviation from what God has revealed. The way of God. A deliberate deviation from that. Uh, whenever men and women come to those kinds of uh, options or choices to be made, they incline naturally to do that which pleases themselves. Because they're dead spiritually. It is their nature to commit trespass. It is their nature to deviate deliberately from God, what God has revealed. 
He uses the generic word also for sins, doesn't he? Trespasses and sins. What are sins here but simply the departure from the moral standard that God has revealed? Anything against God, anything that God says no to, that's a sin if you do that. Anything opposed to God. It's a very generic word. Everybody sins. In fact, King Solomon reminds us there is not a single person who does not sin. Everybody sins against God. We did not, at some point in our lives in the past, become dead. We didn't become dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead in trespasses and sins. What Paul means by that is we were all born dead in our trespasses and sins, which is an interesting concept to consider, isn't it? Because what he means by that is that your condition in the womb by conception, in your mother's womb is a condition of trespass and a condition of sin. So much so that Augustine understood this, this great truth, that, and David certainly confesses it, right? In sin did my mother conceive me. Sin is everywhere, even in the conception of a child, even in the birth of a child. So we were born sinners. It is our natural condition, according to God's Word, according to our nature, to engage in trespass, a deliberate departure from God, and to engage in sins, to, to depart from what God has revealed is right. And why do we do that? It's natural to us. We do it because he says we're dead spiritually. Or to put it another way, we are totally unable to do that which is right, that which is not a trespass, that which is not sinful. We're unable to do that. We cannot. In fact, nobody can obey God's law at all in this condition. It's absolutely impossible. The only man who has ever lived that obeyed the law is our Lord Jesus Christ. Perfectly. Perfectly. Not just in some points, but in every point. Perfectly. And what do we discover about our own condition, but that that law of God encapsulated in those ten words we break every single one of them naturally and easily. Because we're dead, Paul says. Every man, every woman. And then Paul tells us in verse 2 that this used to be our condition. I'm so thankful for verse 2, aren't you? I mean, he says, in which you once walked. You don't walk like that anymore, is what he means. You used to walk that. It used to be your condition. And that word walk, by the way, is a familiar uh, word or usage of a word in the Old Testament to uh, demonstrate your practice, your way of life. Blessed is the man who walks this way, God's way, who doesn't walk that way. So living life is described in God's word as a walking. Christians ought to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they have received. We're to be worthy walkers. So walking describes your practice, your way of life, your natural course at any moment. And that's a good way to think of your life. How am I walking at the moment? It refers to your practice. Paul says that in our natural condition, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, that's what that's how we walked. We walked in those things. We did those things. We practiced those things. And notice that he further specifies exactly what that walking is like. Look at verse 2. He says, we followed the course of this world. We followed, he says, the prince of the power of the air. Now, if you consider those two words, walked or walking and followed, following, I suppose you could say the walking is in a more active sense, whereas the following is just in a general drift or a passive sense. I was just going through life actively committing trespass and sin against God, but passively I was just following the course of the world. Passively I was just following Satan. I was just content. I was in that condition. That's what I did. So I followed the world and I followed the evil one. I followed Satan. And then in verse 3 he says we lived in the passions or the lusts of the flesh. 
And we might ask ourselves, what does that look like? Well, it's not a very pretty picture, is it? Because the flesh shows itself, Paul says, in the body and in the mind. So he says in verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions or the lusts of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So what is the flesh? The flesh is a very active thing. The flesh shows itself. In fact, Paul says quite clearly here that we carried out the desires of the body and the mind. Or to put it another way, in these vessels, these tents, these tabernacles, we demonstrated fleshly lust. And in our minds, our thoughts, our desiring, we were lustful and so on. So it's a a degenerative picture, isn't it? It's a depraved picture that you pick up here. that, That when Paul says you once were like that, think about yourself as an Ephesian. As an Ephesian, you were idolatrous and you were immoral. These are the two great sins of humanity. These are what all men and women do everywhere in every generation and every century. They are immoral. They are idolatrous. They are all about themselves and they are anti-God. So to be immoral is about me. To be idolatrous is I'm anti-God. Israel was like that in the Old Testament. Why does God tell us those things? He tells us those things so that I might wake up. I might pay attention to that condition because I used to be like that and I should not be like that anymore. And yet how easy we find it to slip back into the ways of the world and into the ways of the flesh. And Paul says, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. Did God approve of this way of life? (laughs) Obvious answer to that question, of course not. God does not approve of trespasses and of sins. God does not approve of following the world and following Satan. God does not approve of living your life in the lusts of the flesh, uh, fulfilling those lusts in your body and in your mind. God does not approve of that. Notice in verse 3, he says, By nature we were children of wrath. So he has shown us our condition that this depraved, totally incapable, spiritually dead person is under condemnation, under the wrath of God, by nature. Children, he says, of wrath. And what he means by that ultimately is that we are just children upon children upon children upon children, sons of disobedience, actively rebellious against God, deliberately rebellious against God. We once were like that. Under that moniker, children of wrath, God condemns. God judges. God is always angry at sin. There's never a sin that God just ignores or lessens or reduces in severity. All sin is lawlessness, as the confessions and catechisms remind us. A lack of conformity to the law of God. So here, in the first opening verses of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, when you look at your condition as it used to be, it is one of depravity, it is one of inability. It's an incurable disease that results in physical death because of spiritual death. We are dead spiritually in our trespasses and in our sins. Our trespasses from the womb, from birth, and by practice in life, and our sins as well. Now, that is a humbling truth, isn't it? That's a dirty picture. That's my picture. That's your picture. used to be like that. See, the great thing is that we can still be humbled when we think about that I used to be like that. Because I couldn't do anything about that condition to reverse it. I couldn't start doing good things. In fact, I discover in verse 10 that the only good things that I can do are the things that God has prepared for me. From before the foundation of the world. I could do no good. And when you read, of course, Romans chapter 3 and Psalm 5, you discover that our words are wicked, our ways are wicked, that there is no one who is good, there is no one righteous, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks after God. No one. The very best of men and women do not seek after God. Because their nature is... They are children of wrath, condemned by God because of this incurable disease of sin that we all have. What a humbling truth. 
Now, having described this inescapable condition, having described our trouble that we all have experienced, Paul goes on to tell us, thank God, that all is not lost. All is not lost. Now, you know, if God did not intend for you and me to recall to our minds what we were once like, He would not have put it in His Word. But he has put it in his word so that every time you read Ephesians chapter 2, it is to remind us that I was like that. But something happened. God did not leave us alone. God did not leave us to ourselves. God intervened. And look how Paul uh, describes how God did that. Verse 4, but God, you notice the contrast. But God did something. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, recalling verse 1, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So notice, notice these things about God, right? Now we have a description of God. You have a description of man, verses 1 through 3. But now we know what God is like. Look what God is like. He is rich in mercy, number 1. You do not get what you deserve. He demonstrates free grace. By grace you are saved, right? It's not of yourselves, verse 8. So we get what we do not deserve. So according to His rich mercy, we do not get what we deserve. According to His grace, we get what we do not deserve. And then you discover that it's because God is full of love for us. Great love. Now here's the interesting thing, right? While you and I were in our fallen, ruined condition, depraved, incapable, unable to believe, to do anything, God intervened. Why did God intervene? Because He's rich in mercy, because He is gracious to His people, and because He loves us with a, a great love. That's what God is like. And you'll notice in verse 4 that he, we could put it this way, He loved us. Verse 5, He made us alive. So we were dead spiritually, but now we are alive spiritually. He made us alive. Verse 6, He raised us up and He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. I ask myself, can I, could I have done that? Could I have made myself alive? Could I have raised myself up, seated myself with Christ in the heavenly places, if I wanted to? Well, the point is I would never want to because of verses 1, 2, and 3. I would never want to. I need God. Salvation is all of God, you see, when we look at these verses. And notice what God did to dead sinners, right? In verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive. Now, you know, what does that really mean, made you alive? You're dead spiritually, so how does this life come? This is what, what kind of life is this? This is resurrection life. This is life out of nothing. There's just dead. There's no life. God gives life to that which is nothing and which is dead. He made us alive. We, we know this to be regeneration, right? The doctrine of the Holy Spirit's new birth. That we have been born again, not of perishable things, but of imperishable, the living and abiding Word of God. He's caused us to be born again by His Spirit. So we are regenerated by His Spirit. We refer to that as Jesus reminds Nicodemus, you must be born again, the new birth. So God making us alive is what we call the new birth. He gives us life. Now every time a little baby is born, it's almost as if, you know, we say we've welcomed a, a new life into the world. But as we know, that baby already had life from conception in the womb. Uh, as far as God is concerned, they've had life. But yet it was not spiritual life, but death. And so that every child that is born is born in this deplorable condition, this unheard of condition that dear moms and dads would never really think of when their child is born because another beautiful child has been born into the world. And yet the seeds of trespass and sin rage in the breast of the little infant coming out in expressions later on so clearly, so without even being 
caught them. It's natural to them. So that the fact that God intervenes so sovereignly, because it's, notice we notice the sovereign purposes of God, but God, God intervenes, so He sovereignly steps in to a condition that can not reverse itself. And He brings new life, new birth. So much so that, that when we sing Amazing Grace, we talk about, I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And that's what this is all about. It's not by my doing that I made myself alive. It's by God's work. It's God's doing. Because dead people don't and cannot make themselves alive. No, they cannot. Only God can raise the dead. And only God can give life to dead people. Why is that? Because only God has resurrection power, creative power, to bring life out of nothing. To take a bit of dirt... And make a man, Adam, beautiful in his creation. The image of God. Let us make man in our own image. Out of dust. Out of clay. Out of dirt. Think of the incredible power that is in God when he just does that. Over that piece of dust and there is Adam created in perfect symmetry and harmony. That's life from God. It's life from God. It's only God has this power. My condition is depravity. My condition in verses 1 through 3 is death. But my conversion, my condition is such, but my conversion from that condition is because God is rich in mercy and has a great love for me and because it's all by His grace. So by grace... In mercy, with the love of God, I am made alive. Given life. We call that, you know, this work that is done by God, the irresistible work of the Holy Spirit. Because you can't resist it, ultimately. Or you can say no to the gospel call for a time. But there comes a time when the Holy Spirit, through a special inward efficacious calling brings us to confession of faith, to belief in the gospel, to see it for what it is, to see Jesus for who he is. That's the irresistible power of God the Holy Spirit. Irresistible because in the first place I'm dead and can do nothing. And I can't really resist ultimately this powerful person, the Spirit of God, and irresistible in the second place because God overcomes inability and depravity completely, easily, so easily. He gives life, life from the dead, spiritually to us. So God's sovereign work does not require any help from me. It's not as if God has done His part and now I want you, you dear people, to do your part. If only you would believe. Oh, I'm so desperate that you believe. I'm so desperate that you open the door, if Revelation 3.20 should ever, ever be thought of like that, which it shouldn't, by the way. It's not standing at the door knocking. Jesus just wipes away the door and enters in, right? The door is no barrier. Whatever is there, the human heart cannot resist the work of God and the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. God's sovereign work in saving sinners requires no help from the sinner. None from us. Because what can I offer? I'm dead. In fact, all I can offer is trespass and sin and following the world and following Satan and his kingdom, walking according to the flesh. That's all I have to offer. That's not spiritual life. That's death. And then I discover it's by grace that you have been saved. By grace. And doesn't by grace at the end of verse 5 you have been saved explain being made alive? How am I made alive? I'm made alive by this gracious Holy Spirit. I've been saved by faith. And faith, of course, is the instrumental cause in fact, in verse 8, it's quite clear, isn't it? For by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith is the instrument. God even gives us faith. He works faith in us. How gracious of God to do that to a sinner. To someone like Ephesians 2. 
which is you and me. How good of God to do this because He's rich in mercy and has great love for His people and is gracious towards them. Now let us not be under any illusion, dear brothers and sisters, how dead we really were. Right? Let's not, let's not mess around with that. This is the most serious statement anybody can ever come to understand about themselves and their condition before God. They're dead spiritually. To understand that is the opening of the eyes. To understand that is to see life, to see Christ, who once was dead. And oh, how dead we truly were and really were. Which only serves to indicate how good God really was to doing something for us, that which we could never do for ourselves. How merciful of God, how gracious of God, how loving of God, that He should step into your life, to my life, with all of its background story, material, whatever it is that we use today to describe what lies behind us. That God should intervene in your little life, my little life, so wretched, so defiled, and open my eyes and soften my heart, that God should do that. That's grace. That's mercy. I don't deserve that. Because I'm condemned by my sin. I'm condemned by my nature. I'm a child of wrath. I'm under condemnation. I'm guilty. God steps in and says, wait, wait, I'll save you by my grace because I love you, because of my mercy toward you. Now if you can see that with your eyes, the eyes of your heart spiritually, what joy fills our heart to think that I was like that. That's a humbling thing. And now to think that God did it all, how humbling that is as well. Because ultimately it leaves man with no ground to boast. Which is exactly what Paul says, right? So that no one may boast in verse 9. That no one may say, I did something, I contributed to my salvation. I mean, what did I ever do to merit such love from God? I didn't do anything. In fact, all I did was trespass. All I did was sin, right? So the love of God then is so immense, so free, so boundless. And the Bible teaches me it's from all of eternity. That's when the love of God began in eternity past for me. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. A treasure. Doesn't the Bible refer to God's people as His treasured ones? The saints of God. Well, you know the word saint means holy. Holy ones. That's what God has done for us. He has made us because we're not like we used to be. And I think part of the problem with many Christians in many churches around the world is that they haven't quite gotten over what they used to be. They're still dabbling in there, still struggling with those things. We need to see ourselves in the light of what God has done for us and latch on to that truth. And when I'm confronted by the darkness and the doubt of whether I really am a Christian, then let me fall back on the richness of the mercy of God and the free grace of God and the love of God for a sinner that is like this. Because there's no one worse than this. This is the worst. Let me fall back on such truth and find all my comfort in what God has done for me. Now you can see in verse 10, by the way, when you look at it, that God's love for us, His purpose for us, reaches way back, doesn't it, to eternity. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, beforehand, that we should walk in them. Notice that word walk again. That we should practice, that we should perform, that we should do those good works which He has prepared for us. So here God shows that He has a purpose. A purpose that goes back to eternity, to everlasting. A purpose that begins in eternity past, and that according to verse 7, if you look at verse 7, so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Perhaps heaven will be, notice, in the coming ages. Perhaps heaven will just simply be the unfolding in all of eternity of the kindness of God in Christ toward us. 
And we'll never need more than that in all of eternity to worship God, to thank Him, to praise Him, right? A work begun in eternity and that shall go into the coming ages where the immeasurable riches, because you can't measure the riches of the kindness of the grace of God in Christ. How can you? Yet God shall unfold them one after the other in the coming ages to us so that we shall just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Worship the Lord. That's consummation, by the way. From eternity to eternity. From creation begun by God to when He finally conforms us to the likeness of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, the interesting thing about God's choosing people is that the choice of God doesn't save them. doesn't save. Election saves no one. It's the atonement of Jesus that saves us. The work of Jesus on the cross. Why is that? Because God requires satisfaction for those trespasses and sins in verse 1. He doesn't just overlook those. God's intervening, God being rich in mercy and filled with this love for us and this grace for us, takes care of what is required by God to save us, namely, a sacrifice to be made. He provides the sacrifice. Isn't that what Abraham understood? God will provide Himself, for Himself, a lamb, my son, Isaac. Don't you worry about that. God will take care of that. Don't you worry, dear congregation, about how your sins shall be atoned for. They are atoned by the cross. It's done. The work is done. So because God requires satisfaction for my trespasses and my sins, He gives us His Son, right? We who, notice verse 12, were without hope and without God in this world, so that through Jesus I can approach God specifically, as the next verses will tell me, through the blood that was shed for me by Jesus on the cross. Jesus did not lose His life. He gave His life. No one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. So Jesus didn't lose his life. Oh, he lived such a holy life, and the people of the time just couldn't handle how he was, so they put him to death, and he lost his life. <laughs> no, no, it's not, that's, not a, that's not Jesus, and that's not his death. That's not the cross. Everything Jesus does, by the way, in his ministry and in his life is leading to Calvary, purposefully deliberately, no more so in the last week of his life. When he deliberately sets his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to accomplish redemption, my redemption, your redemption. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. Every step he takes towards Jerusalem is a deliberate step to accomplish what he has come for, to ransom us, to redeem us. When Jesus stands before the the Roman governor of the world at that time, that poor man, conflicted, guilt-ridden, Pontius Pilate, unable to do what he knows he should do because that man is innocent, and I know he's innocent, and yet he condemns him. Simply because the Jews, who never once believed it for a moment, plead with him and say, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. And he thought more of the world and more of Caesar than he thought of the King of Kings. And yet he's not, that's not, that's Jesus willingly submitting himself to that which he has purposed to undergo. Do you not know, Pontius Pilate, that you would have no power over me unless it were given you from above? Nothing. Therefore, he who has delivered you, me into your hands is the one guilty of the greater crime, the greater sin. And from that moment on, the Bible says, Pilate sought to release him. Away with this man, away with this man. We'll not have this man to rule over us. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. He gave it for us. Deliberately, knowingly, purposefully. So much so that Paul tells us in verse 16 that I'm reconciled to God. And how am I reconciled? Verse 16, through the cross. 
Yes, in the context of this passage, the Apostle Paul draws the Jew and the Gentile together that the hostility that existed between them, that wall of hostility is broken down so that these two groups made up of individuals within those groups are now one people of God. That's God saving Jews and Gentiles and making peace by the blood of the cross of Jesus. It's the cross that kills hostility. It's the cross that kills my hostility to God. It's the cross that brings peace to my weary soul. And oh, how we live in this world and we're so weary of it, aren't we? I mean, sometimes as Christians we get very weary, very bogged down, very overcome by the world. By, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? Oh, dear brother and sister, Jesus is worth everything. You know why? Because he thought you were worth everything to save you. Jesus is my peace, Paul says here, so much so that through his death for me, I find in verse 19 that I'm no longer a stranger and an alien to the covenantal promises of God, but I'm included within them. They become mine. I often think the, the power of a Christian is in, is it rests in their understanding of the covenantal promises that God has made to us through His Son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus being the mediator of all of those promises to us and the fulfillment of them. The more you understand that, the more you study that, the more you see how your life fits in with God. So now, as fellow citizens with the saints, as Paul says here, and as members of the household of God, he says we belong to each other because we belong to God. We are in the body of Christ. We are in the congregation of God's people. So I have a new fellowship. What was my fellowship before? I followed the course of the world. I was in love with the world. I walked according to the world and the course of it and, and according to the prince of the, the power of, air, of the air, Satan himself. But now I have a new communion. A new communion. Think of, think of my condition. My condemnation. And now my communion because of my conversion. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful truths. Humbling truths. All because Jesus died. Or because Jesus died. You know, there's so much truth sung by little children in Sunday school classes, in VBSs around the world. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. Right? Oh, dear congregation. It's quite clear in, in, in the Bible, to me at least, that the atonement, the sacrifice of Jesus is a definite thing is a particular thing for me, for you. In fact, it accomplishes the death of Jesus exactly what it intends to accomplish, namely to save sinners, to save them, to secure their salvation. It is clear then that Jesus died to save His people from their sins, from their trespasses and their sin when they were dead. Now, you know, if Jesus intended to save everyone, by his death, I can assure you everyone would be saved by his death. If Jesus offered up some kind of hypothetical atonement that is dependent upon your choice, that was intended to so save no one unless they choose it, I want to promise you tonight from God's word nobody would choose it. Not one would choose Jesus. Certainly not, um, not me. Why not? Because I was dead, dead in trespasses and sins. Certainly not me because by nature I was a child of wrath. Certainly not me because I was like the sons of disobedience. Not me. And I am confident not you. Not by your choice, no. So I discover then that the sacrifice that's required, the atonement that is made to God the Father is made by this Lord Jesus Christ completely to save me so that I am humbled by it. Aren't you humbled by what Jesus did for you? Thankful for what Jesus did for you? That God considered you and lavished His love on you when you were dead and deserved wrath? And yet He came and showed His affection for us. He loved us. We who once were 
sons of disobedience, loving the world, loving the flesh. And suddenly we discover that God loves us. And God chooses us and God saves us. And we needed saving, right? So God provides the necessary sacrifice and the necessary atonement for all my sins. The only qualified substitute. Jesus. For me. So that the cross, the cross, guarantees my salvation. What Jesus did 2,000 years ago secures my salvation. Guarantees it. And it is, thank God, not left to me to choose Jesus because Jesus has chosen me and chosen you. Oh, how humbling such a thing is. That's what Augustine believed. That's what Luther believed. That's what Calvin believed. That's what the Puritans believed. So from Luther and Calvin and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and John Owen and all those great men and Charles Haddon Spurgeon to us, we all believe that truth. We all confess that truth. We stand with those men and women of long ago because it's the Lord only who has saved us by irresistible grace in this regeneration, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice that, caused us to be born again. Caused us to be born not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, the living and abiding Word of God. So it's clear, this passage. I contribute nothing. Nothing. God has done everything for me. I cannot even choose it because I'm spiritually dead. And then I discover that God comes and intervenes because He's rich in mercy, because He loves me, because He's gracious to me, and because He's provided a sacrifice for me. He's done it all for me. And He opens my eyes. He saves me by sovereign, free grace. That's the gospel, right? Not leaving it up to congregational members who are dead in trespasses and sins and have no idea that they're dead. Who are told that they are alive, that they have spiritual power. When in reality, Paul says, you've got nothing. You're dead. Only God can save you. Only Christ can redeem you. Look to Jesus. Flee to Christ. Believe on Him, right? So much so that when I think about the election of God in verse 10, I discover that we are His workmanship. You know, the idea of workmanship is to create something. That's what lies behind the meaning of that word. He's creating something. A brand new man. A brand new woman. A brand new boy. A brand new girl. Through his sovereign intervention in saving us. In fact, verse 10 even says, doesn't it? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ah, you know, doing any good work is the product of what God has worked in us. It's all because of the sake of His Son, because even my good works are touched by my, my sinfulness. But because of Jesus, they are accepted by the Father. It's all of Christ, isn't it? Every good work, by the way, is from God. Every good work is from God. And He has prepared them so that I might live according to them and do them and walk in them. So that the course of my life today... It's not like the course of my life then. I know the course of my life now is God has works for me to do. To walk in there. To walk in this way. To be a godly and a holy people. So now I discover these glorious ideas of God's preparation for me. Of God's preservation for me. And of the fact that I somehow persevere in the faith. By faith. Isn't that the glorious thing about being a Christian? You press on. Even when you are down and out for the count, you press on because God preserves you and keeps you, right? So my salvation, my sanctification, my security, it's all of God from the beginning to the end. From eternity past to eternity future, I am being built, as Paul says in verse 22, into a holy dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Verse 21, a holy temple in the Lord, so that we are God's people from everlasting to everlasting. Because He loved us, sent His Son to save us. Someone has said that in creation, God shows us His hand, but in salvation, God shows us His heart. 
How true that is, right? Mr. Pink said that no sinner was ever saved by giving his heart to the Lord. We're not saved by our giving, we're saved by God's giving. The modern man, the modern woman wants to be treated as an invalid and not a sinner. And that's why we have all kinds of talk today about our sicknesses, our frailty physically and our illnesses when the real issue with all of us is our sin. That's the real issue. That's what Jesus came to deliver us from. My sins. Sin is the common disease, right? Common to all of us. Thomas Goodwin said that in God's sight there are two men. There is the man Adam and there is the man Jesus. And in those two men, all other men and women are hanging on those girdles. You're either hanging on Adam or you're hanging on Christ. So to be an Adam is death, right? To remain in Adam is death, dead in trespasses and sins. To be in Christ is life, made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ. Man broken by sin, man living by God, by God's grace. These are humbling truths, dear brothers and sisters, aren't they? What a change has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul for which long I have sought since Jesus came into my heart. I possess true hope, real hope, because of Jesus only. He is my hope. He is your hope, isn't he? Ah, to live each day then like that. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for these great truths in your word, humbling truths that speak so pertinently about us, reminding us that we could do nothing to save ourselves, and you have done it all. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for giving us your beloved Son, Father, our Lord Jesus, to be the substitute, to be the sacrifice, and, the sh and our surety before you. Thank you for all that he has done. Thank you for opening our eyes, softening our hearts, giving us eyes to see, eyes that would, were blind, ears that were deaf, for opening and giving us sight and giving us ears to hear the truth. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for loving us and dying for us and saving us. Thank you that we are seated with you in the heavenly places, that one day you shall come again in great power and glory and take us to yourself. What a final salvation that shall be. We shall be like you because we shall see you as you are. And every man, woman, boy or girl who has that hope within them purifies themselves even as Jesus is pure. So we thank you for these things. Thank you for this day, this Lord's Day. And thank you for the truths of the Word. Thank you for your gospel that has come to us that we have believed and confessed. Now send us forth into the world that we might demonstrate that we are your people and that we might uh, do those good works that you have prepared beforehand that we should do, created in Christ Jesus. So that... Gracious God, in the coming ages you might show to us the immeasurable riches of your kindness and grace toward us in your Son. Oh, how we thank you for these truths tonight and this day. Thank you then for the Lord's Day. Thank you for bringing us together. Take us home, we pray, in safety. May Jesus be praised. We ask all of these things with thanksgiving in his name. Amen.